0: with fertilizer in North America, you really gotta understand that it's a global commodity. When you look at global factors, you almost got a factor of everything. And you know, lately we've had the Ukraine, Russia situation. You've got Brazil, how many uh, acres of soybeans they're gonna plant. Just so many different factors that go into what makes up a price.
1: Welcome to the Future Faster, a sustainable agriculture podcast by Nutrient Ag Solutions with our very own Tom Daniel, Director, North America Retail and Grower Sustainable Ag, and Dr. Sally Fliss, Senior Manager, North America Sustainable Ag and Carbon. This is your opportunity to learn about the next horizon in sustainable agriculture for growers, for partners, for the planet. To us, it's not about changing what's always worked, it's about continuing to do the little things that make a big impact. On this week's episode, Matt Taylor, Senior Director of Procurement at Nutrient Ag Solutions, joins us to discuss how global supply line issues are impacting the supply of essential farm inputs. We'll talk about what's driving these supply line issues, how that's impacting the prices growers pay, and what we can expect to see in the months ahead, plus how all this plays out in the greater sustainability context for North American farmers and how they can help lessen the impact. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. Also, make sure you follow Nutrient Ag Solutions on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Dusty Weiss, and it's time once again to introduce Tom Daniel and Sally Fliss. And Tom and Sally, we haven't really talked specifically about carbon markets in some of the most recent episodes that we've done here. But there have been some pretty big newsmaking announcements in that department lately. So can you bring us up to speed on what's happening and what it means?
2: Sally, I think one of the biggest things that's happened in the last few weeks especially was the uh, Indigo announcement that they have been the first company to actually get credits for a nature-based carbon credit, which are farming credits in a scope one piece. That's new. We've been waiting for someone to get across that threshold, and it looks like Indigo is going to be the first one to get to a verified credit today.
3: Yeah, it's exciting news, Tom, to see that threshold finally achieved because it's a long process to get through that. And it's been a long process for us in both our scope one and our scope three. And so to see that it is an attainable outcome is exciting and that we're on the pathway to achieve some of the same things over the next few months is pretty exciting to see that somebody's attained that outcome at the end of the day. And there is an opportunity there for us Indigo has been working on it for a long time. Part of the credits that they achieved in this first group were from 2018 changes. So it's a long process, but exciting to see that we're finally getting to that outcome that's been discussed for so long. And it's a real verified, validated credit. That can be traded on the marketplace and hopefully helps bring additional value to all of the credits that we're generating or other people in the marketplace are generating in order to bring more value back to the growers.
2: Yeah, and I was reading uh, the article that came out. Indigo touts their verified ag carbon credits, and their CEO basically said that there were 175 farmers that would be receiving payments for basically their 2018, 2019, and 2020 practice changes that they had initiated on the farm. And most of the practice changes that we're looking at were around no-till or reduced tillage and cover crops. So that's where the payments were being generated. Out of all the acres that they had within Indigo for those three years, it looks like roughly 19,000 carbon credits were generated and sold to corporations. So to see the um, first transaction actually occur on what we call nature-based payments, farmer credits, is, is pretty exciting. What's your opinion, Sally? Does this open a floodgate now for other companies to start being able to uh, get to a verification? I know you're in the process right now of verifying uh, some of our Scope 1 offsets from our 2021 projects. What's your thought on the progress now of the marketplace?
3: I think it gets some interest back into the marketplace. I really kind of feel like, and we were hearing this from growers as well, right? Over the last six or eight months that none of this seemed to be real yet. And so I think we were starting to see some loss of interest in the field and probably some loss of interest from the buyer side as well of, are you guys ever going to get to anything that's a verified and validated outcome? And so I think it's really great for that to help pushing that forward and show the industry on both sides, both the generators and the buyers of the credits that This is real. We can actually do this. Unfortunately, the way that the verification validation process works and that we're verifying and validating every project individually at this point in time, it's not going to go any faster just yet. There's still some roadblocks, obstacles, pinch points on the verification validation side that won't make it a floodgate opening of credits available, but at least gives us all some hope that we're going to get through this process and there is a place for these nature-based ag credits in the marketplace. But the amount of time that goes into verifying and validating that these credits are real and the practice changes happened, that the growers exist, that the fields actually are out there, which is all good to make sure that what we're bringing to the marketplace is something that has value and is real and gets us away from being accused of greenwashing. There was just an article as well in the last week, Tom, one of the European airlines was called out on some of the claims that they're making, not being backed up by the level of data or rigor that the evaluators or the NGO side of things feels like some of these claims should have at this point in time. So it's a slow process, but we're really trying to get to a place where we can show that what we did is real and actually occurred and we've made a real impact in the landscape.
2: So Sally, one of the initial mission statements that we had around carbon was that we were only going to work toward what we called a quality carbon credit, right? So, we're looking for something that is scientifically based and can be verified that the information that we have is documented and validated. So, we don't want to get into that greenwash space. And, and even, I have to say, for Indigo space here, they've been working since 2018 enrolling growers in their carbon program and still have been, uh, they've been struggling getting to a place of a, a verification where they could actually start paying growers. But they have held tightly to the scientific side of it also. They were wanting to make sure that their credits are verified. And it appears that companies buying these credits want that scientific backing and verification. They don't want to get called out either. You were mentioning the European um, airlines, but that was a KLM article that came out about their passengers being able to get to a net zero carbon footprint if you fly their airline. They got called out on that, and that's going to be a problem for them. So one of the reasons we chose to work with a nitrogen reduction process or our program for 2022 is because that was a clear path to a science-based target, right? There was a path that we could get there. As we're looking forward, we see that the value for carbon has never really been established, right? We've all claimed 15 or 20 or 25 different amounts for what a carbon credit. Now we actually see a carbon credit that has been sold. An actual corporation has purchased a carbon credit from a nature based source. So, are we going to start seeing the true value for carbon to start showing its face and be established in the marketplace?
3: I think it gets us closer. I'm not sure we're quite there yet. It's a great achievement, but it's when you think in the large scheme of number of scope one credits that some of these companies need to obtain, You know, it's 20,000 credits, so it's not going to meet any one company's total needs. But it is going to start to show that there should be a value placed on them. And I think it's going to set a little more of a realistic impression of How many credits are really generated per acre? There was a lot of talk in the press, in the communities, about how one ton per acre should be your goal or your estimate. And if you look at the numbers that came out from Indigo, they're somewhere closer to, you know, half a ton or less. So, it puts a little more reality on what is really possible, I think, and starts to shed some light on that. And I know you and I have talked about that on the podcast before, Tom, that this market is pretty fluid. It's also maybe not exactly as large an opportunity as has been discussed in the ag press or other press, because you know the other pieces, you mentioned the number of acres, they had some of the same challenges we did that You get growers to that sign up point, but by the time you get all the way through the process of practice implementation or data collection or whatever it is, not every acre that signs up is still going to generate a credit at the end of the day. And so there's lots of different reasons why that happens. And I hope this helps sort of reset the vision for what the opportunity is in the ag marketplace, that maybe it's not as big an opportunity as had previously been discussed, whether it's on a per acre basis or an eligibility basis or just all the things we see in the field that change why or if a grower actually gets a practice implemented on the ground.
2: Exactly. I think we were surprised. One, of all the acres of growers they had enrolled in their program up through 2020, that only 100,000 acres actually. As we say, made the finish line and got across the finish line to verified credits. And then the fact that there were only 19,000 credits that were actually verified to the 100,000 acres. So, you know, you're talking about a 0.2, a 0.19 number. And that was much lower than the marketplace or at least the marketing side of carbon has been touting for the last three to five years. And so, I think we're going to see a reality check on some of that. I mean, even in our own discussions within our data teams, you know, we're looking at numbers that are somewhat less than what the marketplace originally thought. So I think there's going to be a gut check a little bit. I'll use that phrase that we're going to see these credits as far as their initial values, as far as tons created per acre, are going to be smaller. That's why the value for the carbon needs to start creeping up as companies buy these credits because we need more dollars generated on a per acre basis to offset some of the cost of cover crops or tillage changes or whatever those changes may be. So it's a good move. I think we're seeing some good opportunities for growers to start looking at this as a potential The one thing I would say, though, Sally, our focus has not always been just around the carbon piece. When we talk about sustainability on the farm, the attributes that come from the practice changes will have much more long-lasting value than a carbon credit to the grower. So when we look at things like water management, water efficiency... The ability to um, sequester fertility into the soil system and just the value of what organic matter and carbon does within the soil structure itself have a lot more values to productivity and water management than just getting a payment for carbon does. So I think the long-term effects agronomically are much more beneficial to these practice changes than just trying to get an impact from a uh, carbon revenue.
1: Well, and Tom and Sally, it is big news. It's worth taking note of. And I think folks should always keep in mind that we're going to have the latest information on these sorts of stories for them right here on the Future Faster podcast. So we'll drop a link to further news coverage in the episode description for anyone who wants to learn more. But this is a discussion that'll be ongoing, and we'll always have the latest on it right here. But hey, as long as we're perusing the headlines today, there's a story that's been in the news pretty much every day for the last six or seven months. That's some of the supply line issues that have impacted every industry, but especially us right here in the agriculture inputs space. And so coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Matt Taylor, Nutrien Ag Solutions Senior Director of Procurement, about how input supply and pricing issues are being addressed and what growers can expect going forward. That's coming up in a moment here on The Future Faster.
4: FarmSmart is the core of Nutrient Ag Solutions' sustainable agriculture offerings. Leading the field with growers to record positive environmental impacts while identifying and embracing new revenue streams. In leveraging practices and products and recording your outcomes, your reward for making informed agronomic decisions will be waiting for you in our digital sustainability platform. The data you input can help set a baseline, identify opportunities for continued improvement, and help qualify you for market access opportunities. We're here to maximize incentives and help ensure the legacy of your operation. Getting started with FarmSmart is easy. Log in or create an account with Agribull, then track your data and get paid. Getting started now means we can get to the future faster. FarmSmart, where sustainability meets opportunity. NutrientActSolutions.com FarmSmart.
1: This is The Future Faster, a sustainable agriculture podcast by Nutrien Ag Solutions. I'm Dusty Weiss, along with Tom Daniel and Sally Fliss, and we're joined now by Matt Taylor, Senior Director of Procurement at Nutrien Ag Solutions. So Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Matt, product supply and pricing is something that we have seen in the headlines of about every day for the last six or seven months. Certainly in our industry, leading up to spring planting, it was a big story. And I'm sure that your role in procurement has given you a front row seat to a lot of what's happened regarding these topics. So before we get into those, can you just elaborate a little bit on what your role and responsibilities are at Nutrien Ag Solutions?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dusty. You sure can. Like I said, Matt Taylor, I'm our Senior Director of Procurement here for our commodity products. So my team focuses every single day on the major farm commodities of NPK and S that we sell at our retail branches throughout North America. So I have a team of seven that their sole responsibility is to understand Crop mixes, what's going on in the field, forecasting, all of the logistics supply issues we have, not only in North America, but overseas. So I've got two individuals that do nothing but focus on MP&K, worldwide markets, why China, Brazil are doing what they're doing. We take that information and we make recommendations based on what risk level we want to take as a company to supply every one of our North American branches with their commodity fertilizer to service our growers.
2: So I'm going to start out and ask you one of the hard questions that we seem to be hearing all the discussion. Not only are supply issues a problem, but the prices that we're seeing on commodity fertilizers especially have kind of been the talk of the town. Can you kind of give us some ideas as how the supply chain is driving all this today and and how it's impacting fertilizer production, supply? How did we get to the place we are today with the marketplace?
0: You know, Tom, I think that is a challenge not only for my team to understand that does it every day, but for our branches and our growers. You know, there's so many different factors that go into it. But end of the day with fertilizer in North America, you really gotta understand that it's a global commodity. You know, only ten percent of the uh, commodities of the MPK and S go down in North America. So when you look at global factors, you almost got a factor of everything. And you know, lately we've had the Ukraine Russia situation, you've got Brazil, how many uh acres of soybeans they're going to plant just so many different factors that go into what makes up a price in in the midwest or the coast wherever you farm that you really got to understand point a to point b so if we only use 10% of the worldwide commodities it really has a factor on everything overseas that's going on another thing you've got to understand is about a third of the tons that were used to go on the ground in north america are imported so we are becoming more self-reliant on North American production plants. They're producing more tons than they ever have. But at the end of the day, it's still not enough to satisfy the tonnage that we need to crop everything from north to southeast to west. So long story short, Tom, there are so many factors that go into it. And I think that's probably where we set ourselves apart a little different as a company, meaning we've got experts in the field understanding what crop mixes are in every state from every branch all the way up through my team to understand what's happening globally. You put all those factors together. And it paints a different picture of of how we look at things. So supply demand is your biggest driver of this. But, you know, the last two years, the commodity prices where they're at, we've seen a lot more tons go to the ground. So when you factor all that in needing more tons, it does put more uh, emphasis on understanding the whole global picture than just understanding one local market.
3: So, Matt, while the marketplace for fertilizer and how we're procuring it is global, How are we determining how much we need to procure? Is that a global aspect or is it a local aspect? How do we come up with how much fertilizer we're going to buy for those NPK and sulfur tons?
0: You know, with the size of our company, it would say that, man, we just we buy as much as we think we're going to sell. But how do we understand how much we need? That is a thing we focus on a lot. And my biggest emphasis for my team is forecasting. And so to answer your question, Sally, is. Our forecasts come directly from our field, from our branches. So to understand what commodities we need to buy, where they're at, how much to bring in, we roll that forecast in from a grower level up through a crop consultant, through a branch, through a division. So it really comes down to what we expect our grower customers to need is how we forecast that. So when I talk about how do you take some of these supply chain issues out and the price fluctuates so much forecasting is the biggest key we see out there so we really take it from a grower up through a branch to understand it is not a top down it is a bottom up collection of those data points
2: so matt with that said Our parent company, obviously, is Nutrien, and they are the world's largest potash and the third largest fertilizer manufacturer. So, you made the comment earlier, which I knew this, but it surprised me, that we cannot supply all of the fertilizer needs that we have for North America just based within our own production. So, What are some of the driving things that lead you to uh, purchase product or procure product outside of the nutrient chain? And, you know, what value do we see today that fact that nutrient is such a large manufacturer of
4: fertilizer?
0: You know, with Nutrin being our parent company and having mines and and production facilities through North America and the world, it leads you to believe that it, it would be easier for us to get tons. And it is. We do have mines and production facilities that do help us. But if we can't forecast what our needs are and when we need them, it doesn't mean too much. So the forecast from the field of when, where, and why, what time of the month you need it, what time of the quarter you need it, is it for side dress? Is it for pre-plant? All of those factors come into where we're going to purchase tons. I think everybody's got to realize that these plants aren't sending in everybody's backyard. So if we need potash in Kentucky or, or Indiana, That lead type could be anywhere from two weeks to six weeks, depending on logistics with railroads and different factors. So we do feel like we've got a better handle on it, knowing that we do have in-house production sitting in North America. But Tom, without a forecast understanding it, when, where, and why we need it, you're kind of shooting in the dark. So like I say, my team focuses so much on forecasting that there is comfort level that we have our minds. But if we don't get a forecast and don't know when a grower is going to use it, That is still the biggest driving factor of making sure we have tons in place for our our customers when they need it.
1: Matt, if I can drill down a little bit deeper on that, I'm curious because you talk about the logistics. What's the lead time for getting a ton of potash or a ton of nitrogen fertilizer from one end of the world to the other end? And what logistical pieces of the chain does that touch? I mean, I imagine we're talking about ocean shipping, shipyards. Barge transportation, rail transportation, and truck transportation, the whole Megillah there, right?
0: It is. So, Dusty, I'll just do this. Where did you grow up?
1: Monroe, Wisconsin, right in the heart of corn and dairy country.
0: All right. So, let's just take Wisconsin. So, if you have to get your N, P, and K, and, and sulfur for when you need it from your farm, the answer is it's not the same for every product. So, when you look at potash, so, you know, a company like Nutrien is the largest potash producer, as Tom said, that's fairly simple. You know, it's just across the border up there for you. So, a two or three week time from wind production to get it to our facilities, that's best case scenario, right? But you need to have enough there to satisfy all of our growers. So that lead time just from point A to point B is a few weeks. But we give ourselves two to three months to fill our system. When you look at the nitrogen side of it, it depends on what product. 50% of the urea into the U.S. is imported. So you could be talking three months by the time you make a ton of urea in Saudi Arabia, put it on a vessel, go to NOLA, up through the river system, on up to it. When you look at the phosphate, it's the same thing lot of imported tons from overseas. So every single product operates independent of itself on a logistics basis. So six to 12 months is how we do our business planning to make sure we have those tons available. Next question for you, I guess, would be when are you going to start planning what the weather is going to do? That can be either two weeks before or two weeks after. So to understand that whole value chain of point A to point B, it's not just a two-week window. It's normally a three to four-month window because how many imports we have to bring in, right? Then you throw in railroad strikes and political issues. All of that comes into play when you look at when you need the tons and where you need it. So I'll say it probably a million more times this podcast having. Not only our branches understand how many tons they need and when they need them, but for a grower, when do you need your tons, where you need them? It's not just as simple as picking up the phone and calling and saying, hey, I need it tomorrow. We do need that lead time to make sure we have tons in place to satisfy your needs.
1: And I'll say it again and again and again, but logistics is nothing short of magic from where I'm sitting. I'll tell you that it's remarkable that we're able to make those supply chains work at all.
0: It is. And, you know, I'm not saying that if you looked up tomorrow, we wouldn't have fertilizer for a grower. But in these high prices, we really do focus on how many tons we're going to sell. And that directly comes from the field of what we are being told, you know, whether planting corn or soybeans or how it all looks, application rates play into a lot of it. But the best information we can get and plan only helps us in the long term.
3: This comes back to the discussion I think we have on every podcast of the value of that data from the grower side from the retail side it's not only valuable in the grower and the crop consultant making a good decision in the field for the right source rate timing and placement of fertilizer but it plays into this whole whether or not they can get what they need you know we often get asked by the environmental side of things why won't growers just make a fertilizer change why don't all growers just use a stabilized fertilizer product and there's just so many things that go into that decision and availability to be able to have the product when you need it where you need it and in the form that that grower or crop consultant is looking for so we probably should have named our podcast something about data tom and not sustainability i feel like
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that w- that would get a lot of listeners
3: yeah so as you know Thinking about your answer to Dusty's question, Matt, on what's the timeline and how many different types of logistics come into getting fertilizer to the time and place that we need it, how much more stress or how much more challenging has the marketplace become over the last definitely three years, but probably 10 years as this really has grown to be more of a global market. And as you mentioned, all of the other factors, political or labor or social that also impact the movement of fertilizer.
0: I've been doing this 20 years and and I'm going to say that it's still point A to point B, right? It's just your equation has changed a lot of where your ton sits. So As North America has become more self-reliant on itself of new production plants coming up, it's that lead time that we talked about, Dusty, about the logistics, like when do you need it? How do you need it? Where do you need it? Farming practices have changed a little bit of maybe less at pre-plant and more spoon feeding the crop as it goes. So all of that plays into the factor of what we're going to buy and when you're going to buy it. You got to remember what the biggest thing is, is even if the lead time is two or three weeks to get it, We don't have enough storage and the North America does not have enough storage to hold it all at once. So all of our tanks and our bins, we're turning those things two to three times. So I guess, Sally, you know, when it goes back to it, do you need all your tons in March because you're going to put it on a pre-plant or you're going to side dress it towards the end of the crop season? All of those things, the better data that you can give us essentially should turn into better pricing, better service, better everything, because we're able to take out some of the headaches that we've had in the past of holding stuff for four or five months, hoping you come in and and buy it, rather than having it there in, I guess, the right time, the right place. So, you know, we're really focused on movement of product just to make sure we can service the growers. You know, price, I don't want to say it's irrelevant in a lot of ways, But if we don't have product for a grower when they need it, it doesn't matter what the price is. So it does come down to our buying cycles are really focused on when a grower needs it and not having too many tons left over. Right. So all that forecasting, all the logistics comes into a big piece of that.
2: So Matt, one of the things we concentrate on is making recommendations at the field level, really around sustainable source products, right? So a lot of the fertilizer products, we're seeing so many changes in the fertilizer industry, the way we deliver fertility and nutrition to a particular acre. Lots of new technologies. You know, you're seeing nitrogen put on multiple times during the year. You're seeing phosphate put on with an optimized biological, for instance. There just seems to be a lot of discussion around sustainable fertilizer and nutrition for the crop. How do you see that? Do you see changes in the marketplace today? Are we using less of any of the particular commodities and maybe going more to maybe in-furrow type fertilizers, those type things? Are you seeing any trends at all in the marketplace?
0: Yeah, we are, and you know, like I said, I've done this twenty years, and right when I came on, you were starting to see some of the phosphates with zinc built in and homogeneous products, right? So on the phosphate side of it, you've seen a lot of changes, and I think a lot of it is being more efficient of where you're placing your fertilizer, make sure you're not getting a, a bunch of loss and just slinging it out there. So we do feel that the sustainable practices that not only we are doing but other companies as well is very vital in the future of the fertilizer world, right? It just doesn't make sense to run the same program that you have, because of some of these high prices and what we're doing for the sustainable side of the world. So I think these things are great. I think they're going to continue to get bigger. I think the question from someone like us to a grower is what value do you see? Because there's so many different flavors of stuff being offered out there that I think it still comes back to knowing what you want, where you want it, how you want it, a company like us can really put that in a plan through your team, Tom, to make sure that we are doing what's not only right for a grower, but what's right for our industry as a whole. But I do see that this being more talked about, every supplier out there has a sustainable group now. Four or five years ago, I couldn't say that they did, right? So the question is, what is right for your farm and how do we help you provide that sustainable option to help you maximize your yields and be more efficient?
3: Matt, as we come to the end of our podcast today, we really would like to know some of your insights going forward. And I know we'd all love to have a crystal ball to know where prices and supply chains and logistics are going over the next six to nine months. But what would be some advice that you can give our crop consultants and growers in the field as they're getting closer and closer to harvesting that 2022 crop and making plans and purchases for the 2023 cropping season?
0: I think it's just continually to put focus on when, where, and why you need and how you're going to apply something, you know, like I say, that is the biggest thing that, I feel like my team can control, our branches can control. And as a grower, if you know your business like we know that you do, being able to tell us when, where, and why is probably the biggest thing. You know, some of these price fluctuations, there's a lot of things that go into it. And it's not just point A to point B. You've got the government sanctions. You've got different things to it. But the things that I really want to focus on is what you can control and what we can help you control. If you tell us where you need it, we can take out some of the noise of the market and hopefully help you make the right decision so i'm not going to say you're ever going to be that we're going to be short fertilizer yeah we may be snug but you know when the time comes of snug fertilizer is having a plan of when where and why you need it is the most crucial point
1: Well, Matt, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, I think that there are a lot of folks who, whether they're ordering fertilizer or just getting a new pair of shoes on Amazon or what have you, take for granted a lot of the work that goes into getting things from A to B. And what you have done today is you have very literally drawn a line from A to B for us and shown us how that magic happens. So thank you for that. Matt Taylor, Senior Director of Procurement at Nutrient Ag Solutions. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Future Faster. That is going to conclude this edition of The Future Faster, the pursuit of sustainable success with Nutrient Ag Solutions. New episodes arrive every other week, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit futurefaster.com to learn more. The Future Faster podcast is brought to you by Nutrient Ag Solutions with executive producer Connor Irwin and editing by Larry Kilgore III. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For Nutrient Ag Solutions, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.